from a John Keats poem, which you may have heard. It is from a poem entitled Ode to a Grecian Urn. And this line has troubled me since I first heard it. It goes like this. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. What troubles me is that if that is all I need to know, I am in trouble because I don't know how I can ever know it when I don't have a clue as to what it means. I was heartened to find out that I am in some distinguished company in finding this line troubling. Poet T.S. Eliot wrote, This line strikes me as a serious blemish on a beautiful poem, and the reason must be either that I fail to understand it or that it is a statement which is untrue. And it is not my purpose today to criticize John Keats or his beautiful poem in which, after all, it is the urn of the title, Ode to a Grecian Urn, that actually speaks these words about beauty. So there is a dramatic and magical integrity to it all within the poetic story that Keats is telling, far from being a philosophical statement that must be defended. But what I wanted to note is that in becoming a quotation that is repeated quite apart from its context, this thought takes on a life and interpretation all its own, and that it may feed into an instinctive desire to associate beauty with truth and truth with beauty. And all I'm saying is that I think we should be aware of that tendency, raise it to awareness, so that we may pose it as a question. Is beauty truth? And truth, beauty? One translation of the Tao Te Ching has Lao Si offering a big no to that question, stating flatly, the truth is not always beautiful, nor beautiful words the truth. And one can then move into a whole discussion about how Keats and Lao Tzu defined beauty and truth and whether these definitions correlated at all or if coming from vastly different times and places they define these terms in such different ways as to make comparison meaningless. And though I would find that a fascinating exploration, <laughs> which reminds me of some... Many times I read my sermons to Hanji before I give them, my wife Hanji, and she says at times, I know you find that interesting. <laughs> While I would find this exploration interesting, you may be relieved to hear it is not what I wish to do today. What I am more interested in is how we here today would define beauty. And moving away from that rather thorny question of what truth means exactly, whether we consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously expect truth or rightness or goodness to be beautiful, pretty, lovely to look at, attractive. And thus expect dishonesty and immorality and evil to be ugly, unpleasant, horribly disfigured, unattractive. 
You see what I'm saying? If we carry this unexamined expectation, I think we miss the fact that not everything that is good is beautiful or its beauty is not immediately apparent to us and that not everything that is beautiful is good. And I realize that I've thrown a bunch of words together and you may say beauty is not at all the same as pretty or attractive or lovely to look at, that it runs deeper and wider. And I get that. And still, there is that tendency that resides deep within us and yet operates on a surface level where all these definitions do run together. In the reading, that professor of sociology at Concordia University in Montreal, Anthony Sinnott, says there's no reason for us to think that beautiful people are actually good and ugly people evil, yet we do. Yet we do. It's in our archetypal stories, in fairy tales, in movies, in novels, in songs. It is little wonder that we internalize this expectation. And though it is undoubtedly meant to be metaphorical, it translates into real-world disparities in how people are treated in terms of opportunities, education, income, and all-around encouragement or discouragement. In a broader sense, it results in us being unprepared for just how pretty lies can be. How attractive evil can appear. How beauty can be employed in profoundly immoral acts. And it may cause us to miss out on the beauty that is not immediately apparent. The music of Wagner is considered beautiful by many, yet it was also played and proclaimed as inspirational to a Nazi regime. The power of beautiful music to bring people together in common cause is undeniable, and yet there is no guarantee regarding the purpose, the cause for which it is used. Beautiful words similarly can inspire people to acts of profound goodness, and alas, those same words can serve as cover for hateful and harmful acts. Consider the words of any and every sacred text. The words of great philosophers, the words of poets and prophets and teachers. Beautiful people can, and because of our natural inclinations, have a better chance of influencing us for good or ill. And homely or plain or just regular people have a little harder time being heard. That's what the research tells us. And you can see this syndrome at work even in how we imagine what people look like from the distant past. People who we have no idea what they actually look like. Consider this rather provocative supposition from a book entitled A Personal Jesus by Upton Sinclair. Next comes the question, what did Jesus look like? 
Every scribe who copied a manuscript would be made happy to write that the founder of his faith was godlike in appearance. The same scribe would be in anguish as he wrote that the godly one was small and unprepossessing and had a crooked back. And yet, such are the traditions which have come down to us. St. Justin Martyr, church father of the second century, said as follows, He appeared without comeliness, as the scriptures declared. These last words are of major importance to us, for the scriptures we possess declare nothing of the sort. It can only be that the pious scribes cut out the unpleasant descriptions of their revered founder. If they had been pleasant descriptions, they surely would have been allowed to stand. Clement of Alexandria, another church father, wrote, The Lord himself was uncomely in aspect. His form was mean, inferior to men. Tertullian, mastermind of the early church, says his body did not even reach to human beauty to say nothing of heavenly glory. St. Andrew, Bishop of Crete, at the beginning of the 8th century, wrote as follows, But moreover, the Jew Josephus, in like manner, narrates that the Lord was seen having conate eyebrows, also known as unibrow, goodly eyes, long-faced, crooked, well-grown. The word crooked is that Greek word epikufos, and it means hunchbacked. Now tell the truth. Whatever you think of Jesus, however important or unimportant he may be in your spiritual life, doesn't that physical description of him kind of blow your mind? It did mine. And I wondered, why is that? Even with all of the many different depictions I have seen, and the many more recently that have tried to correct our history of white Jesus and capture a more realistic geographic and cultural image, none have been like this. They all have shared a certain handsome, pleasing demeanor. And look, Upton Sinclair not only has collected evidence from the writings of the church fathers that Jesus may have looked wildly different from our pictures of him, but has suggested that this points to what could well have been a cover-up of these details. Every scribe who copied a manuscript would be made happy to write that the founder of his faith was godlike in appearance. The same scribe would be in anguish as he wrote that the godly one was small and unprepossessing, and had a crooked back. Why? Why would the teachings Jesus shared, the model that he gave, the compassion that he showed to others, be any less powerful if we knew, in the words of Tertullian, that his body did not even reach to human beauty to say nothing of heavenly glory? And yet it speaks to this tendency within us to expect that goodness will appear as physically beautiful, whatever the cultural definitions of that are at the time, matching our preconceptions of what that looks like. And I have no idea of the scholarly validity of what Sinclair has suggested beyond the sources he quotes, but I did notice my own shocked 
response to just imagining this physical image of Jesus so radically different from the familiar portrayals. And I had to wonder why it felt so radical. And this gets into very touchy terrain. I do not mean to say that any of the traits that Sinclair attributes to Jesus make one ugly or homely. I do not mean to flip the script and say that really beautiful people are more apt to be evil, so watch out. I do not mean to say that plain people are more apt to be good. There are a lot of things I don't mean to say. What I do mean to say is that I do believe that everything is beautiful, as Ray Stevens sang in that familiar song. Or maybe more precisely, in the words of a quotation mistakenly attributed to Confucius on many websites, I believe that everything has beauty. Everything has beauty. And if that is the case, how then shall I live? I realized in grappling with the theme for this month that I often relate to beauty in a very passive fashion. Beauty is out there for me to take in. It is something I see or something I hear or something I experience. I find something beautiful or I don't. I find someone beautiful or I don't. And this month's theme, which includes that pesky verb nurturing, challenges me to take a more active role. If I believe, as I just stated, that there is beauty in everything, how do I nurture that? How am I responsible for causing beauty to grow? How do I call it forth from myself and others? And then I see this high school student's project. Wow! The power of simply affirming the beauty you see in someone. The beauty that could otherwise so easily be missed. What would it be like to practice as individuals, as a congregation, affirming the beauty we see in others? And there was one scene in the video that I cut out because it held some harsh language in the context of a worship service, but I do think it's important to describe it. It was a student that reacted very differently from the others, who reacted with great anger and even a threat of violence to the notion that she was being filmed because the filmmaker found her beautiful. Shut up, she screamed, when the student repeated that she found her beautiful. I'll cut you. This is to say that we are talking about deep stuff here. I don't mean to try and guess all the dynamics of that particular encounter, but I do believe that there can be a great resistance to understanding ourselves as beautiful, to risking the belief that someone else could find us beautiful. You heard another student in the video say, I kind of don't believe you at this point. It is not something to play with. 
to affirm our beauty or to have our beauty affirmed makes us vulnerable. Makes us feel vulnerable, exposed. I get the anger, the fear, the striking out. And if we are to call beauty forth, and I think we should, I think it is part of our mission to deepen connections by nurturing spiritual growth, practicing justice, and inspiring joy. If we are to call beauty forth, we must recognize the power and challenge of that call. But oh my goodness, the beauty that can blossom forth. As poet Galway Cannell writes, everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. There is beauty in everything. That is all I need to know. And knowing that, what then will I do but to affirm it Proclaim it and call it forth. 